The rider is good at paying attention, I believe, to the world around him. The good rider practices that. But I do also believe that there's a danger in being too, too self-preoccupied. And I think the beauty in riding is to hold it loosely, is to not try so hard. All good pieces of uh, writing and literature for me always come off effortless. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Sean Dietrich is a blogger, a storyteller, a musician, a novelist, a columnist. On his blog, Sean of the South, he posts a new story every day about the people and places of the American South. His new book, You Are My Sunshine, tells the story of a long bike ride he took with his wife. In this episode, Sean and I talk about paying attention, talking to strangers, and the unconventional path that took him to his work as a writer. Sean Dietrich, uh, thank you so much for being on uh, the Habit Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Sean of the South. Uh, you, so that, that's your blog, yeah. uh, Sean of the South, uh, which you, is every day you post an essay on there? Yeah, uh, it's been every day for about 10 years now. Yeah. Uh, and these are tight little, tight little essays, what, 500, yeah, uh, 800 words? Yeah, I start, when I started, we, I would never go over 460 words. That okay. was a personal number for me uh, that just came out of the blue. And uh, so I kept every essay for a, for a good couple years under 460. I think maybe a few times I got to 462. And that's how I go. Then I gave myself some freedom. I got to 500, and now I linger around six to 800 words. Uh-huh. And so I've yeah. been at the six to 800 range for, for the last eight, six or eight years, somewhere like that. Yes. Yeah, so talk to me about how you manage to write an essay every day. Well, uh, I heard an interview with a, with a uh, young man who was a newspaper reporter. And that was the industry I'd always wanted to get into was newspaper because uh, the artist who's a literary artist has some sort of luxury built into their their professional, at least their their idealized professional workspace. And they get to ruminate on uh-huh. things. They get to write when the muse hits, write when the inspiration hits. But the newspaper man is a workhorse. He uh-huh. has to accomplish the daily miracle every day. And I liked that. And I heard a uh, an interview with a reporter, young reporter, who had gotten to interview a famous baseball coach. And the baseball coach and him were talking, and they were getting into this conversation. And they realized that they had talked and done this interview right through the national anthem. And the young reporter was so just embarrassed by this. He said to the coach, old coach, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I talked to you through the national anthem. How disrespectful. And he looked at the kid and he said, son, I do this every day. (laughs) And I remember thinking doing something every day frees you up. A lot of people might think it locks you in uh, and it's hard, but really it, it, uh, it gives you freedom because you know, you're going to approach it again tomorrow. It gives you freedom to get it wrong. So that's how I started it. I started Uh it as an exercise, as a practice, and then it took over my life. Yeah. At some point, you you reach a you reach a point where you realize there's always more where the last came from. Yeah. And I think you have to push through to a point. It's it's easy to think of creativity as a some sort of reservoir that might go dry if you're not if you don't steward it or be careful. But 
truth is, is that I, I imagine you have discovered that the more you do it, the more the more it flows, the more it happens. Yeah, uh, to me, it's writing is more akin to practicing the piano or practicing the guitar or practicing an instrument than it is to creating a painting every time you you paint. Uh, you sit down and you work through the basics. If you're an instrumentalist, you work through these basics of your craft, scales, arpeggios, uh, small passages of songs, etudes. When you're writing any form, long form, short form, you're, you're allowing yourself the, the freedom to work through a study. Hmm. And you learn, rather than treating it like a creativity that has to be good, it has to be perfect, this is, this is a practice, uh, like martial arts or some other kind of... So that's how I view writing. I don't, you know, I've, I've written a lot of columns now <laughs> yeah. uh, over the last decade, and maybe one or two of them are any good. It doesn't matter to me anymore whether they are good or not. They just, they are, and I enjoyed the process of writing them. Yeah. So that's well, I, I've seen you joke. You know, in, in your in your blog, you joke about you know talking a lot, talking too much. You said in your report, your, every report card says yeah. Sean talks too much. Yeah. But but I think what's impressive and um, you know, well, it, it, it's not your volubility that's impressive. It's the fact that you're paying attention. Right, every day you're paying attention to, to something enough to write well, uh, a well formed essay about well. it. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that maybe might be where the idea for the blog itself started. Uh, you know, I had gone through a really terrible time personally, uh, just a, a perfect storm of catastrophic events, and I really didn't have a, a center or a focus in my mm-hmm. life, and I had tried to enroll in a writing program at a very well-known university which shall remain nameless, but is located <laughs> at 1600 FSU Parkway, Tallahassee. Okay. And I was, uh, I was turned down. I was turned down because I'm, I'm a high school dropout. I'm a middle school dropout, if you want to get technical about it. And I approached education much later on in my life. Uh-huh. I went to community college, got all my equivalency. Uh, so I didn't belong there in their opinion. Uh-huh. And truthfully, I probably didn't belong there. But after you get turned down, it hurts. It hurts because this was a field I wanted to go into. And I thought that I had been shut off. You know, mm-hmm. my, my license to do what I really wanted to do was uh, denied. So uh, I had tried to get in on a few newspapers uh, to start writing. And they asked me for some sample work. So I gave them some sample uh newspaper column style format pieces and uh, at many of the meetings that I had with the editors they would take my piece and they would read it and they'd say I can't do anything with this this is too this is too in the moment this is too regional this is too Uh uplifting this is too goody wormy happy smarmy feeling Uh we need blood we need guts get out there and find a real story and that's just not me yeah. Uh, so I, I just did what I did, uh, and I put it out there on on the online format, huh. and the rest for me was, you know, it, that's yeah. the only winning horse I've ever been riding. That's a it's it's 
great to live in an era when you can kind of make your own genre, so to speak. I mean, if the, your your newspaper people may have been right. Maybe they can't do what it's you true. do. So, but I still believe that there's there was an audience for it. Yep. And uh, and I believed that. So I didn't want to I didn't want to put myself in the moment of a of a dark moment. I'm getting around to answering your question. Okay. Like you said, I do talk a lot. Uh, yeah, I forgot what the question is. Well, it, it it's a practice of studying everyday moments and everyday uh-huh. people. Yeah, yeah. And I, I you know, I, I try, I'm trying to do that. Yeah. That's why the writing is born out of my attempt to do it. It's I, I haven't figured it out. I just, uh-huh. I try. How did you get from middle school dropout to now I think I'll go to a... A, a creative writing program in college. That's that's a there's a yeah. a gap there. Well, I started writing when I was in fifth grade. My mother got gave me a typewriter. Mm-hmm. I loved to write fiction. That was my true love, and I was an, a really big reader. Um, Tolkien, I loved to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, fantasy, and then I read classics and stuff. I just I just loved to read, and uh, so I'm crafted these little stories of my own they were not any good but uh then when i dropped out in middle school i dropped out in seventh grade after my father committed suicide and uh it wasn't really that big of a deal um, Mm. around my people Mm -hmm. Uh, education was important i guess to some degree but not like it is to many other (laughs) groups of people Uh, so nobody said anything. I got a job. I started working. And once you get into the workforce, you realize there's really not a whole lot of room for creativity here. Yeah. And, it, and it changed my mind real quick. I wanted to do something creative. Uh, yeah. So when I did enroll in college, what I wanted to do first and foremost was write. I wanted to do something that was fun. And so one of the mm-hmm. very first class I took when they allowed me into school was not a remedial class. It was a, a creative writing class. And I was the first kid. I mean, I was, I think I was 20 years old. I say kid. I was the first guy in in the classroom. And no one had even showed up yet. And she said, well, why are you so early? And I said, well, I'm just, I've waited a long time to be here. <laughs> and so uh, that was one of the teachers who gave me one of the best one word advice, one one sentence advice axioms that I've ever had and that was I like how you talk just write how you talk Uh and we'll clean it up a little bit and that'll be your voice and it just was so revolutionary she wasn't criticizing me she wasn't telling me to to go here do this or to make sure I do this or follow this uh, format she just said write how you talk and it freed me up and it was the best advice I've ever had I, I remind myself of this every day when I write to just write this yeah this is easy if i just had to write a dialogue of what we're talking about today i could do that yeah if i had to really think about something that, to write about and make sure that it was good and important and it mattered to people i could yeah i couldn't do it um i'm glad to hear that you got that kind of advice in an academic setting right yes yeah. academic setting is often let's figure out some other voice besides this one that you grew up with yeah to talk some right. other way well sometimes the academic setting can be it can suffocate mm-hmm. good creativity I've found in my short experience but uh, this was not that way but then again this was a really small community college we met in double wide trailers uh-huh. uh, and 
and it was just a different kind of people. All our instructors knew our first name and how our mama was doing, you know. And yeah. That kind of thing. Have you kept up with that teacher? She's passed now. Uh-huh. But I did, yeah. I yeah. saw, I found her, after I had my first book published, I saw her by chance in a grocery store. And she asked what I did. And I was able, able to tell her what I did. And it was ex, it was an extraordinary moment for, for me. That's and I great. think she liked it, too. I bet it was for her, too, yeah. Sean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the saying, you know, there's only two kinds of stories. A stranger comes to town or a person takes a trip. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like, you know, a lot of what you do is you taking a trip. Yeah. You, know, you seeing something new, writing about it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, not too long ago, you'd written something about Noonan, Georgia, and, and it got yeah. passed around social media. Yeah. And my mother-in-law's from Noonan, Georgia. And so, I, and so you know, we, that there were people in my world that were excited about, you know, what, what oh, you wow. had done. And, uh, and, of course, your new book, um, You Are My Sunshine, is about a trip, a bike yeah. trip. Yeah. Um, and um, I just want to talk about this idea of getting out of your what seems normal and seeing something new and how that shapes your work. Yeah, well, uh, because I grew up rural, because I spent my formative years in the Florida Panhandle, and it was just, uh, it was flat. We had one kind of tree, a longleaf <laughs> pine, and yeah. that's about it. Uh, we had the bay, that was it. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of travel in my life at uh-huh. all. So I was, I've never been overseas. There's so much of America I've still yet to see. You've still not been overseas? Oh, you know, never have. Uh-huh. Never have. I think we went on a, a carnival cruise to Mexico once, <laughs> if that counts. But I, to be honest, I don't yeah. remember most of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I had friends who would travel. Right? Uh-huh. And they had, they had been overseas to Europe or they had been, you know, to different places. And I, part of me was always envious. And then I finally got to a stage of my life where I was able to to have wheels and do my own thing. Uh, and I took some of my first road trips, just me and my old truck, and I realized that this is where, for me, where creativity and writing comes from, mm-hmm. seeing new things. Because when I write about them, I process them in a different way than I would process them just looking at them. Now mm-hmm. I get to take out a magnifying glass and look at them so so travel is so important to me and i'm making up for lost time at this stage of my life uh, trying to see as much as i can and it is it is i sometimes tell jamie i i can't seem to write unless i get out Hmm. and and travel and move around it doesn't have to be anywhere exotic it can be to you know charleston or somerville or it can be to some backwoods tennessee town Mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Uh, let me see some people. Let me eat at the local Greasy Spoon. Let me do something local that only the locals know about, and, and then let me write about it. Yeah. And that's what I want to do. And, and I'm doing it for myself, most of all. But, uh, so I think it's imperative for the, for the stimulation of the mind of the writer to uh-huh. get out and move and uh-huh. see and touch and taste. I think... I think if you're not doing that, you're not living for one thing. Therefore, you might not have a whole lot to write about. Yeah, yeah. You say you're doing it for yourself, but you, but it seems to be obvious. To, it seems obvious to me that you're also doing it for Somerville and Noonan, Georgia, and, and yes. Thomasville, Georgia. I yeah. love that piece about the big tree in Thomasville, oh, Georgia. Oh man, that you I, I I love small towns, uh-huh. and I love I love 
towns, and I guess what I'm really trying to say is I love people. Mm-hmm. Like Noonan, those people were so good to me. Those yeah. people, we, I did a thing at their book festival just recently, and I got to speak in the old courtroom, and these people were just, they just rolled it out for me, rolled out the yeah. red carpet, so kind. Yeah. And I, the way I grew up, I grew up so shut off from, from people. Mm-hmm. No education, uh, being the child of a suicide uh, being a suicide victim, I guess, if you want to call it me, uh-huh. uh, you're blackballed by a lot of people. They don't know how to deal with it, so they don't. So uh-huh. uh, you grow up feeling isolated, and then isolation becomes your defense mechanism, whatever. And at this stage, I've rediscovered human beings. And part of that is in little towns across the southeast. And I have felt such a connection with my fellow man through what we do now that my life has so much more color, so much more meaning than it ever had before for yeah. me. Yeah. One one thing I think that your work does is, you know, when you live in a small town, you think there's not much yeah. to this. Yeah. Right. And when you go write about Noonan, Georgia, Thomasville, Georgia. Yeah. Some town in East Tennessee. You're you're honoring them and, and giving them a, a, a new way of seeing themselves. And well, thank you for saying that. That's that's one of my main goals. Uh, to me, small town America is you know I know they say it's dying, and I'm sure it is, but it's also it's also like the hidden gem in this country that. Mm-hmm that yes the populations are going down but they're still there and they're still just as wonderful as they always have been the heart is still there the soul is still there they still know everything about every and and i want to see that and i want to touch it and i want to feel it and i want to honor that because to me that is america i come to a big city and i feel lost in the in the fray but um when I go to a, a smaller place, I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm i attracted to it. I want to honor it, celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, another sort of part of your mojo is your willingness to talk to strangers. Yeah. Right? Well, that's my mother coming out in me. <laughs> she, uh, We couldn't take a bus trip or go out into the, the Piggly Wiggly without my mother meeting somebody and having an hour long conversation in the parking lot uh-huh. until I had starved to death, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I have definitely inherited that from my mother. I can talk to anybody. My wife and I went out for my, our anniversary one year and I just, we sat at the bar waiting for a table and a guy next to me at the bar had this really great story. And my wife kind of looked at me and looked at the guy and thought, our anniversary is over. <laughs> He's going to talk to this guy and get it all, get all the details. And, uh, we did. Me and the guy talked for a long time, and uh, I'm not sure if I ever did pull away. And we might have had to do, redo our anniversary dinner. But <laughs> I do love to talk to strangers. Yeah. Um, you got any more to say about that? Talking to strangers. I mean, yeah, uh, talking to strangers is 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 a skill. It's not. I mean, I've inherited it, but it's it is a skill. I have another friend. He's a therapist. And he's just the most social, happy guy. And whenever we go out into public, he can make friends in any situation mm-hmm. with people. Whereas 
I'm looking at these individuals around us and they're, they're guarded, they're mm -hmm. tight. This is just kind of the normal American way to be now. Uh, just kind of keeps to yourself private. And he kind of busts through that. He's an older guy and he's able to bust through that. And I practice this myself. And when you're able to do that, you'd be amazed at the, uh, at the new scope you get for life itself. Uh -huh. I mean, I was at a bar, uh, last week and there was this guy who came into the bar and he was loud he was speaking so loud and he was he was when he would speak spittle would come flying off his mouth and he was young and he was he was uh, his fashion was very strange very angular he was wearing <laughs> these big baggy jeans he had you know tattoos and everybody was cutting him dirty looks at the bar but there was something really wrong with him perhaps there was something mentally wrong with him and as I sit next to him, so I kind of scooted next to him, and we started to talk. And uh, come to find out, he had had a traumatic brain injury uh -huh. uh, about 10 years ago, and the doctors said he was, he was dead, except for one doctor who said, I know we can find a specialist in Europe who can deal with this kind of head injury. So in order to get that specialist, they froze this young man, in ice at UAB. Wait, they froze the whole his whole body. <laughs> really? They put him into an induced frozen coma. It's one of the only times that it's been done in the USA. They got this doctor in. This doctor did some crazy magical surgery on him that he installed pump devices inside his body that deliver medication so that he doesn't have to take medication orally, which would screw up different organs and make him loopy. In short, this man's life is a miracle, uh -huh. and he is a beautiful human being. He's a, he is a miracle. Uh -huh. So what he does now is he teaches art to inner-city kids in Birmingham. And yes, he still suffers with the uh, after-effects of his TBI, his traumatic brain injury, but he is teaching these children while he's alive, and he's going out, and he even adopted a daughter, uh, He's a beautiful young uh -huh. man. And I would never know that had I not ventured past the line that we all that we often draw to make a new friend. Yeah. And now we're friends. Huh. Do you have um like questions, tried and true questions that you ask strangers to, to nope. start a No, I just talk. We just talk. <laughs> and and maybe maybe five minutes through I might think, I'm I'd like to write about this person. Yeah. And and but at that point, I still, I never direct the conversation. I just hang out and listen. And when I'm done, if I feel like this was good, you know, I'll go, I'll approach writing about it. Uh, and if not, I'll just, I'll leave it alone. Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, I've never written about this man. Uh -huh. But but I would like to, but there's some moments that you have that are so incredibly special. I think, I don't want to write about that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to share this with other people. This mm -hmm. was just for me. Yeah. Which again, I just shared it with everybody. You know, yeah, all your you thousands of the, listeners. So and the listeners do have it. Yeah. Um, so one thing you you pointed out, somebody had written to you for writing advice or something, and, and you pointed out that uh, writing starts with paying attention and examining, you know, what comes into our view, which is you know pretty. It's I think that's great writing advice somewhat standard writing advice, but then you took the next step and said, now the problem is because 
writers are interested in examining things, they end up examining themselves. Hmm. And did I say that? That's yeah, true. I mean, basically, the, the the gift of the writer is to is to pay attention and examine the the world. But the danger there yeah. is this sort of excessive, yeah, self self, yeah, so preoccupation, consciousness, self, yeah, whatever. Um, now you seem to have forgotten that you said that. So maybe <laughs> you may not be ready to talk about it. No, uh, no, I do remember saying paying attention, and I do remember talking about the self examining. There is danger. When when writing, you sometimes when I write, I will I will write for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, uh, most of the time, actually, unless we're on the road, then I write in the passenger seat when my wife drives. Uh-huh. You, that's a lot of time spent in your head, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I you do that repetitively. You know, you're with yourself. You are keeping yourself company. Your words mm-hmm. are also the return end of your conversation that you're having with this screen, with this keyboard. And the writer is good at paying attention, I believe, to the world around him. The good writer uh, practices that. But I do also believe that there's a danger in being too too self-preoccupied. Sometimes when I go to like a book festival or something, uh, I'll meet authors. And these are authors who are, are doing much better than I am <laughs> in their yeah, world. Sure. And yet when you talk to them, they're, they are very preoccupied with themselves. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that writing doesn't make that a little worse uh-huh. for them because uh, the pressure gets greater when you start, your output gets bigger and when people are more interested in it. And then you're putting this pressure on yourself. So now you're really thinking and examining what you're going through and how you're feeling and and these people have nervous breakdowns sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm thinking of one writer in particular now who the pressure just got too great. Uh, and I think the beauty in writing is to hold it loosely, is to not try so hard. All good pieces of uh, writing and literature for me always come off effortless. The feeling is always effortless. The reading of it feels effortless, and you just get the feeling that this was easy for this person. And that... that Feeling doesn't come across, and at least in my work, if I am totally focused on me, yeah, it has to be. I'm out here having fun. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking at the world. I'm looking at things. Yeah, yeah I you're looking in. out. Exactly. Yeah, it, that's my opinion now. Uh-huh. And remember, I'm uneducated, know nothing. So these are just these are thoughts and then <laughs> little things I come up with. Um, you know. You say you know you're uneducated, and I'm like I'm not clear on exactly how much education you ended up getting, uh, but but I do remember uh, I, I dug up a, a favorite quote of mine from Flannery O'Connor and kind of wrote it in my notes here. She says, "The type of mind that can understand good fiction, and of course you're writing nonfiction, so let's just say good stories, is not necessarily the educated mind, but it is at all times the kind of mind that is willing to have its sense of mystery deepened by contact with with mystery." I'm sorry, its sense of mystery deepened by contact with reality and its sense of reality deepened by contact with Mr. Myself. That's a good yeah. one. That's a good... The, the type of mind that's willing to have its sense of, of mystery deepened by contact with reality and its sense of reality deepened by its contact with mystery. That's good. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's real good. And I, she's one of my favorites too. 
Which I, I should hope so. Yeah, she beautiful. I mean, yeah. I just went to Savannah and kind of hung out at her house. Just yeah, to, you went to her birthplace? Just to touch it, yeah. The, yeah. Did you take the tour? I didn't take the tour. I've taken tour. it before. Yeah, it's a great tour. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good... I, that's a good thing. I, I write fiction, so I write. I have my fiction uh-huh. side is uh-huh. there, and uh, we just. I just submitted the final or the first manuscript for my next novel, and uh, I would say writing fiction and nonfiction for me is still the same. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people I've listened to a lot of authors on that I've and things that I've done and. They're experts, and they say, "Well, it's different. Uh-huh. It's when you're writing nonfiction, you're this, you're that. When you're writing fiction, it's this. It's it's to me, it's the same. Uh, fiction focuses on the story and the arc and the entertainment. Mm-hmm. And when you read a nonfiction book, it has got to have a story. Mm-hmm. It has got to have some nugget of entertainment, or there is no reason to read it. Mm-hmm. Fiction." Ex- Explores things through the cloak of anonymity and nonfiction. People are afraid sometimes to explore those things, so they just don't. But but the reader wants those things explored too. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any difference in fiction and nonfiction. The well, only, one thing I love about nonfiction is that you you're you're are forced as the writer to keep looking at what's there until you understand what it means. True. And and, and fiction, I would, you're tempted to kind of fudge things a little bit so so that true. it. it you get to the meaning a little more easily. Well, I agree with that. Uh, I would say in fiction, you are making the thread that goes through the mm-hmm. series of vignettes, whereas in nonfiction, you have to look for You're the thread. You're the thread. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck figuring it out. Yeah, because you've got <laughs> 7,000 threads. You know, Every yeah, day yeah, you yeah. have 10 or, 10 or 12 different stories operating, and so you're telling all these, but you have to figure out which one is the most important. And so yeah. by the end... Like my my last nonfiction book, mm-hmm. uh, when I finished it, I read. I'm I'm a pretty hard editor on myself. Before I ever submit, I try to get it mm-hmm. really good. Uh, when I went through it the first time, I thought, "What in the world did I just do? <laughs> what What was I trying to say? This makes yeah. absolutely no sense. This could be the worst drivel I've ever written <laughs> in my life." And I had to really ruminate on that and think and find my main whatever my yeah. main thread and go back and then go back and go back and and it took a while yeah um and that tells the story of a long long bike ride what three or four hundred miles with your wife yes uh through we went 350 miles from pittsburgh all the way to virginia uh-huh. and i rode a tricycle <laughs> so i looked like a uh, and it's it's interesting when people see you riding a tricycle out on this fitness you're talking about like the recumbent bike yep. thing that's it yep. you remember big wheels yeah it's kind of like a big wheel yeah right for adults yeah uh, it's interesting people's people's reactions to you when they're on the trail. They look at they would look at my wife. She's riding a traditional two wheel bicycle, and then they look at me, and I'd hear them as they kind of drove on past me. They go, "He's so brave for being out here." <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, here I am pedaling, thinking, "Wow, I've I've really sunk to a new low." <laughs> and the really hard part about it was my wife with a traditional bicycle one of her rotations equaled about five of mine. <laughs> so she was pedaling down this road easy, and I'm like, you know, the little Boston Terrier trying to keep up. <laughs> yeah, that was my book. Uh, and so it was the pandemic when that came out, and I remember 
<laughs> pandemic when you made the trip. When I made the trip, that's right. Books just coming out. Books now. coming out to, to yesterday or the day uh-huh. before. Yeah, yesterday. And I thought to myself, what am I going to write about? You know, this pandemic. What uh-huh. am I going to write about? I, I mean, the whole world shut down. My the pandemic began during the book tour of my last nonfiction book, uh-huh. and it was. I mean, I was on. We were like twenty-one cities, and we were on city like nine, and the world shut down. Uh-huh. And that is not how you want to release right. a book. Yeah. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah. So I'm thinking after that disaster, I've got this next, this other nonfiction book I'm going to write. And I'm thinking, what am I going to write about? And it was a difficult time. So we had this experience. It was extraordinarily transformative going out and being in nature and getting your, uh, your focal point realigned. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was so good for us. And I thought, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write about this. And once you do that, you have ruined the trip that you took. Yeah. You have ruined you because you are going to be examining yeah. and re-examining what you just went through for the next year, uh-huh. every single day. Yeah. And by the time this book is done, you will hate yeah, right. the bike trip. You will hate every word. I mean, it's... Yeah. Were you, so were you writing a notebook every night? Yes. Yeah. I wrote. I had like three big notebooks when I got home, uh-huh. and the reason I chose to make this my book was because I had written a series of columns, just a few, uh, as soon as it was done, and these columns got a lot of attention from people because we were all suffering. The pandemic closed yeah. inside, and it seemed to me that people all wanted to get out and do something, yeah. and I took that as, oh, so people would like to hear yeah. more about this, so... So let me ask you a question about, you, you commented on that you're spending a year working and reworking. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to a concert and you watch the whole thing through your, because you're taking pictures on your yeah. cell phone the whole time, that seems like a good way to miss the whole, the whole thing. You know, I'm, I'm at the Grand Canyon and I'm trying to get the right picture instead of looking at the Grand Canyon. How is, 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 is the writing you're talking about, is that another... How's that different, or is that is that a, 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 another version of the same thing? No, that's a great that's a great analogy because that that's a great analogy at least in my mind because uh, about eight years ago I went to the Grand Canyon uh-huh. for twenty one days by myself and I was I was I was going to ride and do stuff and while I was there I had a really nice camera with me and I took about 2,317 pictures. Is about 2,317? Yeah. <laughs> it could have been 2,316. 16, but we're not sure. Yeah. So there I was when the trip was done. Uh-huh. I, and I had taken all these pictures, and I looked at my final count, and I thought, oh, I, I've, I've got it all documented. I've done it. And as I was driving out of a Cococino or uh, whatever the forest is, National Forest, something happened to my camera, it fell, something in back happened. I pulled over, I looked, went to go get it, and I looked at my camera, and everything was gone. Really? I had lost 21 days worth of stuff. So I had two days left in Arizona and a camera that didn't work. <laughs> and I realized that I had missed the whole Grand Canyon because I was so obsessed with getting the right picture, the right this, so that I could recapture it later. Yeah. And I had not, I had really not seen it. Mm-hmm. So without the camera, I spent two days, and I realized I saw more in two days than I saw in 21 days. I mean, 20 or 19 mm-hmm. days. At the canyon with that camera, that's writing for me. 
I meet a lot of journalists who they'll carry their, their notes, uh, their notepads, and when they'll do an interview, they're scrupulously taking notes of mm-hmm. everything somebody says. And they're probably doing the right thing with, with whatever, what, what modern wisdom says to do. Uh-huh. I don't do that. Uh-huh. I've never taken a notebook to an interview. When I interview somebody, especially if it's off the cuff, but if it's even formally set up, I listen, I pay attention, and I'm in the moment I try uh-huh. to be. And when it's over, I find, I don't do this just because I don't, I don't want to take a notebook. I find that I retain a lot more yeah. just being in the moment and not making sure that I'm divided. So yes, uh, when it comes to writing, I feel that it's important to stay in the moment. You're going to get plenty of time to re-examine when you mm-hmm. go back through it. Uh, but if you don't stay in that, that zone, you're going to take the picture and you're going to, you're not going to have anything in the memory to write from. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really long answer to your simple question. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, I got one last question before my actual last question. Okay. Uh, and that is in a recent column or blog post, uh, you said of your own, you said your life ambition is to help others who have fallen. And the context for that is you were talking about your own father who, you know, as you said, died by suicide. Yes. He, he kind of fell and couldn't get up. Yeah. Um, and you um, are interested in the ways that people fall and yeah. do get up or can get up and empowering people to get up. So I'd love to hear you say a little more about that. You, 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 I think you phrased it, this was my father's gift to me. It was. Uh, he left us in a, in a wake of, it was ground zero. Yeah. And there were no discernible gifts after that at all. Uh-huh. And then somehow, maybe it was about six years, seven years after he passed, I began to see that I I identified with different people than, than other people that I knew identified uh-huh. with. I would go into... A, social setting or a room and I identified naturally with a different kind of person. I would naturally seek out, find and befriend the person who really was on the skids. Uh-huh. I don't know why. Or I didn't know why. All of my closest friends, it, it occurred to me one day, all of my closest friends are all boys without fathers hmm. or young women who are practically orphans or uh, they've got a a disease or they've mm-hmm. got uh, some really, really obs- physical obstacle. A friend of mine had uh, cerebral palsy. And why am I friends with these people? Why are these my chosen? Uh, it really, really got to me. And I realized that, that my father had, when they do a skin graft on somebody, uh, the skin, the donor <laughs> loses those layers of skin and exposes this raw piece of skin. Uh-huh. And I'm, it's cliche. But when you go through a really bad, bad experience, uh, when you are around someone who's fallen that hard, when you see these horrible things happen, you lose this this protective layer of skin, and you become very raw, very yeah. very easily affected. And things, little touches, hurt you more than they hurt would hurt other people. And the the adverse of that is also true. The uh, little warmth moments, little. Mm. 
reassurances feel much better to you huh. than they do to other people. I feel that's like that's a great insight. Well, we only have each other, and when you're when you're, you're around fallen people, you you see this all the time in AA. You see it in all these support groups of anything. They they lean on each other. Yeah. And I just want to be. I want the reason of my life to be to help the people who have nobody to lean on, right? Mm-hmm. Through whatever little means I can. I'm only one guy. I can't do that much, and I'm really not that great of a person. I'm just kind of one guy. I just I do want to help those who have fallen and can't see the light because mm-hmm. I I know what it is like. I continually fall in moments where I can't see the light. And I don't get out of those moments unless someone helps me out. You you, you can't do it yourself. Yeah. And I'm not talking about just suicide. I'm talking about all sorts of areas. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go through medical crises and they don't know how to, to get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have helped me out and I want to help other people out. And the fact that I want to, I can directly relate to my father. He, and, and he accidentally instilled that in me mm. through what we went through. Yeah. That was that was the gift. The gift was that he made me a better human being mm-hmm. than maybe I would be. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least a more intentional one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well last question. Who are the writers who make you want to sit down and write? That's easy. Uh okay. Louis Grizzard was my all time okay. hero for two reasons. He was short and brief, yeah, and he was funny. Uh huh. But he could also touch your heart. Sure. So uh, my second writer is is really probably my first, and that's Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm a high-minded literary person, because I'm not, but because he went through so much garbage in his life. He yeah. went through death upon death upon death, and failure upon failure, and still managed to keep a trademark sense of American humor. Uh-huh. that set the standard for humor writing, but also for the American novel and so on and so forth. And the fact that he'd gone through so much heartache and managed to do that, to me, is the more impressive story than what even more impressive than his writing is mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Sean Dietrich, thank you so much for being here. I hope we can talk again soon. Man, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.